Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you, as always, so much for tuning in. Uh, let's give a shout out to our one and only, the man, the myth, the legend, super producer, Mr. Max Williams. And they call me Ben, uh, joined, as always, with Mr. Noel Brown. Uh, Noel, we, like like most people, we like to think of ourselves as fairly uh, distinct here in the, in the uh, mass of humanity, right? Oh yeah, we're special boys. Mm-hmm. There we go. There we go. We uh, uh, we like many other people throughout ancient history to the modern day have spent a lot of time wondering where we came from, wondering about our origins as individuals, and like many people, you know, we we know a little bit about our ancestry. Uh, we don't know everything, however, and. That's why we were interested to team up with 23andMe. Nowadays, you know, it's easier than ever to learn about your past through the power of genetic testing. And Noel, I have to ask, and Max, you as well, growing up, did you guys ever have a member of your family who was like obsessed with their genealogy? I didn't really personally. And in fact, it wasn't until, uh, no spoilers yet, but um, that I took the 23andMe test that I really had much sense of my heritage at all. So this was super eye-opening and fascinating process for me. Um, but no, I, I definitely am aware of folks that take that very seriously and kind of consider themselves like armchair, you know, genealogists or, or anthropologists or what have you. But uh, there was really nobody in my family that uh, that much mentioned it when I was growing up. How about you guys? Yeah, I actually have a pretty extensive story about this one. It's uh, so my paternal grandfather, so my great grandfather on my dad's side of the family, he was adopted in the early 1900s mm-hmm. and they lost all of his adoption papers. So there was really like no idea where that side of my family came from. It's just been kind of thing. So my aunt has been spending like the last, no joke, like 30 plus years just trying to dig up stuff. And like she recently did a test like this and got like some more answers, but it's been a, it's been like a kind of like a lifelong pursuit of hers right there. Wow. Yeah. I had, um, I had something similar because of the um, controversy surrounding my paternal line, the Melungeon side of my family. Uh, so there were times where people were actively hiding their, um, I guess their perceived membership of that group. And as a result, they're hiding some of their genealogy. But of course, as time went on, uh, people became less hesitant, you know, about acknowledging the past and the truth. And now here in 2022, it is easier than ever for people to, as we said, learn more about what led to you being here a fellow Ridiculous Historian, listening to this show today. But today's question, how did the world-changing science of genetic testing and our concepts of DNA, how did they evolve from the work of ancient philosophers and Augustinian friars all the way to these cutting-edge innovations? 
in today's show, uh, we're going to unravel some of the history of genetic research. And uh, along the way, we might share some of our own personal experiences because, spoiler folks, uh, Noel and I each took some tests with 23andMe. Uh, and Noel, I believe this was your second test with the group. Yeah, it was. Uh, and let me tell you, uh, a lot of things have changed uh, for the better. It was probably a couple of years ago that I took uh, the test previously and the one that we took for this uh, episode, this partnership, just had way more granular information, including stuff about uh, potential health risks, markers that are contained, you know, within uh, my genetic code, our genetic code, your genetic code, um, that can give you indications as to whether you're predisposed to certain medical conditions. So it was very, very illuminating. I mean, the last one was great too, but it really feels like they've added a lot more um, bang for the buck and a lot more features, a lot more results that are very meaningful. Not to mention, um, I believe, Ben, you and I have some interesting kind of shared results that we will also save for the end. Yes, yes. You might be surprised by how this sort of technology can connect you with people you never imagined yourself connected with. But let's let's start there, right? What makes you, you? Okay, so Here's the lay of the land. People were asking, what makes me, me? What makes you, you? Uh, well before the concept of microscopes, well before DNA was even a thing, the history of this, like the, the ancestry of ancestry research and DNA starts all the way back in like 5000 BCE, which I think might surprise a lot of people. Oh, for sure. And I mean, you know, it was really more of a philosophical question uh, for a long, long time. I mean, there were certainly observations made towards various traits and things that family members possess. But the whole idea of like, who, who am I? Where do I connect in the universe and, in, you know, uh, life and all of that was much more of a, of a philosophical question. But you're right, Ben, as early as 5000 BCE, um, humans were practicing something called selective breeding. So there was an acknowledgement of like, okay, how do we isolate these traits and figure out how to express them, whether it be livestock or, or crops or, or what have you, or even, you know, humans. <laughs> there was a certain amount of selective breeding that came with like inbreeding uh, and, you know, the idea of maintaining a bloodline. As we know that there were some pretty catastrophic uh, consequences to those um, activities, but, you know, their head was kind of in the right place. <laughs> They just really didn't quite know what they were doing, but they definitely did when it came to the livestock and the crops to make more robust crops and uh, more hearty livestock. Yeah, yeah. A.K.A. the reason uh, you have things like corn, you know what I mean? The reason you have domesticated crops, as they're called. And there's something really interesting about that. I can't remember who I was speaking to, but uh, we were talking about the old question, what is the most successful form of life on the planet? And, you know, a lot of people would just say humans. But if you think about it, the idea of wheat being domesticated or corn being domesticated, it sounds like humans won that game. But if you look at it from the perspective of the plant, they kind of won because now they're spread across the planet. I thought that was kind of trippy. 
Yeah, totally. I actually heard an interview with a uh, an entomologist who specifically um, focuses on flies. Um, mm-hmm. And flies, uh, he believes, were one of the most successful species uh, in the history of the world because of their, you know, ability to kind of bob and weave and, and, and dodge things. And just, you know, they're one of the most successful aerialists uh, mm-hmm. on the planet. And also they essentially feed on dead stuff, which there's always going to be plenty of. Also, I believe they've been around uh, much longer than than humans. So while we may be successful and good at, like, you know, making stuff and figuring things out, it's all kind of self-serving. And at the end of the day, we're only really a blip in the historical record. Oh, yeah. We're like a fad to crocodiles. You know what I mean? We're like pogs to crocodiles and alligators. But uh, but, were you a pog guy? Were you a pogman? No, I, I had some pogs, but I wouldn't say I was a pogman. I just, uh, I had enough to uh, play the game, and then I, I didn't get super into the game. I actually liked the art more. That's right. I barely understood how the game was played. I just know there were slammers, uh-huh. and then there were the pogs. And I mean, it was kind of like tiddlywinks. You won other people's pogs by slamming them in a stack. I don't know. Doesn't matter. We're not here to talk about pogs. What we are here to talk about is pangenesis. Yes, let's talk about a little bit about the great philosophers you mentioned earlier. So let's go to Aristotle. Aristotle is one of the first people on record who said, you know what? I wonder if traits acquired throughout an organism's lifetime can be transmitted to their offspring. Essentially, and not to be too uh, too gruesome here, folks, but essentially the question is, if I took five people and I cut off a different finger on each one of their right hands, would their children also be missing the same finger when they were born because that trait was acquired during that person's unfortunate lifetime? He's kind of added to this guessing game with this theory, the one you just mentioned, Noel, pangenesis, which sort of describes how these uh, traits could be passed on through particles called gimules, which sort of encapsulated the traits and then allowed them to be transmitted to reproductive cells. And then he also thought about uh, what he called the form-giving principle. And a lot of the stuff you're going to hear from these ancient thinkers, by the way, is in principle not super-duper far off. Yeah, he believed in something called the form-giving principle, That was a property of an organism that that was able to be transmitted through bodily fluids, specifically semen, which he believed was kind of like blood, but a more pure form of the stuff. And also he believed that the mother's menstrual blood was another one of these uh, form-giving fluids. He believed that this interacted in the womb to direct uh, the early development of an organism. Mm -hmm. So again... You can, you can see where uh, someone working with the technology at the time could have reasonably started making these uh, suppositions. But Pythagoras, Aristotle, they weren't the only folks who were thinking through this. Hippocrates and Epicurus also had their own takes on the idea of heredity. Heredity is just the passing on of traits from parents to offspring, whether that's through sexual reproduction or through asexual reproduction. And it's weird because Hippocrates' theory is sort of, it's kind of similar to Darwin's later ideas 
that involved hereditary material collecting from throughout the body. But again, one thing we want to be careful of here is we want to avoid just focusing on the ancient Western philosophers because people in India and China were thinking about this too. That's right. In the Sharaka Samhita that was um, written or, or at least distributed around 300 CE, ancient Indian medical writers uh, observed the characteristics of the child were determined by what they saw as four distinct factors. The first being those from the mother's reproductive material, the second from the father's sperm, and the third from the diet of the pregnant mother, uh, and the fourth being those accompanying the soul so while there were, some of these do feel uh, pretty connected to modern scientific understanding of reproduction, that fourth one kind of imparts a more religious characteristic as well. Yeah, yeah. One through three, you can nod along at home going, okay, uh-huh, sure. And then number four is where we see just how, how um, inextricably intertwined uh, the ideas of religion were with the ideas of medicine. You know, it's funny, Ben, the idea of things becoming attached to the soul mm -hmm. as it enters the fetus, what does that remind you of? Uh, do, 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 do. Phaetons, uh, anybody? Oh, Scientology? Hi. I was thinking Cloud Atlas, reincarnation, um, but yeah. Well, those be. are all kind of in the same wheelhouse, but I mean, it's the idea of like negative things becoming attached to the soul from birth uh, mm. that carry, that follow you along for the rest of your life and cause you to, you know, develop all kinds of problems. That, that just reminds me of that, uh, that concept within Scientology. Yeah. Not that L. Ron Hubbard was anything but original, you know. Right. Uh, <laughs> Anyhow, uh, I walked around the corner for that for that slight disc, but let's jump around in time, Noel. Like when you hear this, when you thought about this episode, right as you tuned in, you were probably thinking of Charles Darwin and his famous 1859 banger on the origin of species, full title on the origin of species by means of natural selection or the preservation of favored races and the struggle for life. Uh, we'll get to that in a second. Darwin is a uh, recurring guest on our show. But if we're talking about genetic research and we're talking about the, the full scope of this, you can kind of divide it into two broad eras. All the stuff before a guy named Gregor Johann Mendel and all the stuff after this friar. Yeah, that's right. Uh, modern genetics really started uh, with the work of this man who was an Augustinian friar. He was really into the idea of uh, propagating pea plants, like, you know, like English little green peas. When he published his work specifically on the reproductive qualities of these little fellas in 1866, he established the theory of Mendelian inheritance. Um, he became the first person to lay out a scientific and mathematically founded uh, science of genetics, even before it was even called that. Mm -hmm. And this is legit. You can find it in his Encyclopedia Britannica entry, which personally I thought did a good job of breaking it down in an understandable way. So let's get in the nuts and bolts, strap in for some math. Don't Ooh. worry. We're going to, we're going to, uh, we'll be right there with you. Try to make it easy. Okay. Math, math me up, Ben. Math, yeah, math right. us up. Let's math up. So uh, the reason Mendel wants to study the pea plant, the edible pea or Pisum sativum, is because it had a lot of distinct varieties. It was easy to control 
uh, you know, like easy to grow, but then also easy to control how the plants pollinate. And there was a high proportion of successful seed germinations, which means, you know, it was uh, if you were making something new or trying to track something, you had a, a higher than average likelihood of that plant actually growing to pass the seed stage. So he tested uh, for, for about two years, from 1854 to 56, he tested 34 different varieties for what he called the constancy of their traits. And when he wanted to see how these things transmitted, he chose seven traits that he thought were expressed in a distinctive manner. And it's stuff that's like, a lot of it's stuff that's visually apparent to him. So stuff like tall plants and short plants. What colors are their seeds, green or yellow? So he referred to these kind of alternate uh, versions um, as contrasted characters. Uh, he also referred to them as character pairs. Um, and, you know, this is very similar to what we talked about in ancient times, the idea of kind of crossbreeding different things to create a strengthened single trait. He would cross varieties that were the same except for one trait. So, for example, tall might be crossed with short. Um, and then there would become a generation of hybrids, which he referred to as F1. That generation would display the character of one variety, but not that of the other. Uh, and he believed, or at least using terms that he developed, one of the characters was dominant and the other one was recessive. Uh -huh. This, this this checks out with what we know today, right? In terms of like eye color and all of that stuff. We'll get more into that in a bit. But um, he was definitely barking up the right genetic tree. So in the offspring uh, that he raised from all of these crossed hybrids, uh, which he referred to as second generation or F2, he would see the recessive trait appearing. And then he noted that entirely a third of them had the original heritable traits while two thirds were of that hybrid uh, arrangement, you know, or rather, you know, presented the more of the hybrid kind of qualities. So he, yeah, maybe Ben, why don't you, 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 you kind of did the research on the math here. So why don't you take us home here with like kind of the, uh, the, the solution? Oh, for sure. So uh, this goes to uh, Gregor's major discovery. He says, look, after I've, read these successive generations of plants, uh, just as you described, Noel, I'm seeing by the time I get to the descendants of the dominant group that I can rewrite that three to one ratio, you know, that kind of dominant to recessive appearance ratio. Uh, I can rewrite it to one to two to one. And by this, we mean 50% of that second generation were true breeding, 50% were still hybrid. In a, in a way, he was... He, finally, he was arriving at an understanding of what we call dominant and recessive genes today. This major discovery probably wouldn't have been made by his predecessors because they didn't grow statistically significant populations of, of testing material, which is a very cold way to say living things. And they didn't follow the individual characters or characteristics uh, separately to establish their relationships to each other overall. So this is big, big stuff, right? This is world-changing stuff. He publishes it, and everyone ignores him. 
Everyone sort of ignores yeah. him. It comes out in like a not very well-known scientific journal. Most of the scientific community at large isn't aware of it. And if you were talking about heredity at this time, you are much more likely to be in a slaughter or a cafe talking about Darwin's hot button theory of evolution by natural selection. And uh, he also, Darwin, we should say, wasn't super perfect. Aside from his culinary taste, which were ambitious, check out yeah. Weird Historical Flexes uh, to learn more. He uh, he had a theory that, he, all, not all his theories were widely accepted. His own theory of heredity, which he had called pangenesis as well, just didn't really didn't really fly. Uh, so to find the next part of the story, we have to fast forward to 1883. Let's just remember that, I mean, reading through this now and talking about this now with so many echoes of what we know to have been determined to be true and accurate. So it's just like, well, duh, why wouldn't people pay attention to this? But at the time, it was like very out there, right? Like it would not have been uh, connecting with like the sort of traditional scientific thought of the time. Uh, and it's just one guy kind of like breeding pea plants and, and espousing these kind of like wackadoo notions of uh, traits and qualities in offspring. So it would not have been like an easy sell necessarily, but you're right, Ben. If we press the fast forward button to 1883, we've got a man named August uh, Weissman, who was an evolutionary biologist from Germany who was making waves by breeding mice uh, after chopping off their tails, like three blind mice style. But presumably, you know, for science. So for it's, science. It's a little, yeah. Yeah, he uh, he did this for reasons, as he assured the mice police. Uh, mainly, even though this sounds ghoulish, there there was something important to it. He wanted to disprove this popular idea of Lamarckism, the the concept, like we said, similar to the ancient philosophy concept that physical characteristics of a parent organism can be carried through to the offspring. So when mice with uh, amputated tails gave birth to mice with absolutely normal tails, they proved a crucial point. Uh, so we don't, the names of those mice are lost to history, but thank you. Now, we, we do know a very interesting field that's more in the realm of um, psychology today, epigenetics, the idea that trauma can be, um, you know, carried or passed down through generations. So in theory, the trauma of having their tails chopped off could have been, you know, carried to their offspring. Yeah, that's a great point, man, because epigenetics is the study of the way gene expression is changed. Like what is more active in your genetic code uh, instead of like your actual genes getting altered. There's a great study about starvation in World War II that goes to this. And epigenetics is like still very much the forefront of uh, genetic science today. Yeah, that is a good point. Maybe the mice were traumatized. Certainly possible. Um, but let's get into some more breakthroughs. Here are some names that might ring a bell. Watson and Crick. I think there's like a biopic about these guys. I think Jeff Goldblum played uh, Watson or Crick. I can't remember which or one. Or Gary Oldman um, played both of them, maybe. It's certainly know. possible. Yeah, or like, yeah, Daniel Day-Lewis played every character in the whole movie. Um, but yeah, they are, you know those names, like leave it if you don't know exactly what they did because they are uh, the American biologists that are largely uh, created, well, they are credited with discovering DNA in the 1950s. But, you know, as is often the case with science, though, timing is everything. 
who's first to market with something is not, is not necessarily the same as like who actually discovered the thing. So DNA was in fact first identified in the late 1860s, 1869 to be precise, by a Swiss chemist named Friedrich uh, Meischer. But again, Watson and Crick are the names that you probably think of when you think of uh, of DNA and and DNA sequencing and all of that. Also, to jump in here real quick, the name of it is The Race for the Double Helix. It aired on September 14th, 1987. It aired. So it was a TV movie. Yeah. And it had Jeff Goldblum as Jim Watson, Tim Pickett-Smith as Francis Crick, Alan Howard as Maurice Wilkins, and Juliet Stevenson as Rosalind Franklin. Some names Ah, that I think will come up here in a little. Yes. Hit the sound cue. Awesome. Thanks, Max. And thanks, Matt Frederick. So here's the thing. Those guys are super famous and rightly so, but there's more to their story. Uh, A lot of people, probably ourselves included at some point, have made the mistake and thought those guys discovered DNA by themselves in the 1950s. This is not the case in reality. Instead, DNA was first identified all the way back in the late 1860s and 1869 by a Swiss chemist named Friedrich Meischer. Uh, He wanted to figure out what made white blood cells white blood cells. You know those, they're part of the body's immune system. And his main source of those cells was... uh, Kind of kind of grody, kind of gnarly. He got most of these white blood cells for his research from pus-coated bandages that he Ooh. took from a clinic. So Yum. Yeah, <laughs> you can't do that today. Uh-uh. <laughs> that is wild. Pus-coated bandages. That's a metal band if I ever heard one. Or at the very least, a song. It's a song, um, yeah. That's pretty, pretty gross. Uh, so, uh, he noticed that when you added acid to a solution of those cells, that a substance separated out from the solution and that substance was able to be dissolved again in an alkali solution. So in investigating that solution, he discovered that it had some pretty unusual properties. It was different from other proteins that he'd, uh, looked into before that he was, you know, much more familiar with, uh, through his past research. And my sure, uh, called this substance new. Nuclein, uh, because he believed that it had like, you know, leached out from the nucleus of the cell, um, which, you know, at this point, that was something that people understood, the, the, the nucleus of the cell, just the, the makeup of the atom and the cell, etc. So Meischer had discovered essentially the basis for, uh, for all of life, the molecular basis, DNA. And then he decided, how, how am I going to figure out how to pull this out? Mm-hmm. In its purest form. Yeah. And he, you know, he didn't know that exactly what he had discovered, but he discovered it. And then in the decades after his discovery, we see this cavalcade of breakthroughs by many other researchers, other scientists, people like uh, Phoebus Levine and Erwin Chargaff carry out these research efforts to learn more about the DNA molecule, including its primary chemical components and the ways those components work together. We actually get, fellow etymology nerds, the name DNA from a biochemist named Albrecht Kosel. In 1881, 
good old Albrecht, uh, who I'll call Al, identified nucleon as a nucleic acid. You, you can acid. call him Al. Yeah, you, yeah, if he'll be my bodyguard. Uh, so he provided the present chemical name, dexoribonucleic acid, DNA. And then he also went on, for extra credit, to isolate the five nucleotide bases that are the building blocks of DNA and RNA. First, we have uh, adenine, then we have uh, cytosine, then we have guanine, thymine, and uracil. Yeah, not to do much, too much pee humor, but uracil feels like it got ripped off. Yeah, like it all sounds the other like it would be like a, 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 you know, a diuretic of some kind. <laughs> yes, with a bunch of fine print at the very end of the commercial, right? So there's a little bit of a, a bittersweet note to Gregor Mendel's story. It wasn't until 1900, 16 years after his death in 1884, that he finally got his due. Three separate botanists, Hugo de Vries, uh, Carl Korins, Eric von Schermach, uh, all of them independently rediscovered the work of this obscure Augustinian friar. And with the new breakthroughs in the understanding of cells and chromosomes, they were able to kind of ground his weird pea plant experiments. And so people were able to say, again, the guy never lived to see it, but people were able to say, wow, he was really on to something. And then in 1902, just a few years later, things kick up another notch. A scientist named Walter Sutton says, hey, the segregation of chromosomes during the process of meiosis are pretty much exactly like the segregation pattern that this friar predicted. Oh, and people weren't calling them genes yet. That still hasn't happened. No, no, it definitely wasn't. That didn't happen until 1909 when a guy by the name of Wilhelm Johansson came up with it. He coined it. He used it to describe the Mendelian unit of, um, of, of reproduction. He also used the terms genotype and phenotype to separate the genetic traits of an individual um, and the way it ultimately came to look. So as a matter of fact, here is a list, a kind of a quick hit list uh, of other notable breakthroughs of the time. Why don't we just uh, round robin these, Ben? Yes, so in 1911, a guy named Thomas Hunt Morgan, along with his students, uh, used fruit flies to show that chromosomes carry genes. They also discover what we call genetic linkage. In 1941, George Beadle and Edward Tatum's experiments on the red bread mold um, known as Neurospora crassa, also would be a good name for a metal band, um, show that genes act by regulating distinct chemical events. They uh, actually proposed, the two fellows, that each gene directs the formation of a single enzyme. And then in 1943, again, just a few years later, William Astbury, who is a scientist from Britain, gets the first X-ray diffraction pattern of DNA, and it shows that DNA must have a regular periodic structure. This leads him to say that, hey, maybe nucleotide bases are stacked on top of each other. But what's DNA actually made of? Uh, in 1952, Alfred Hershey and Martha Chase uh, attempt to answer this question, showing that only the DNA of a virus needs to enter a bacterium to uh, infect it, uh, which gave a strong bit of support for the idea that genes are, in fact, made of the stuff. The stuff yeah. being DNA. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so 
Those are just a few of the scientists uh, and just a few examples of the research that all went into leading to Watson and Crick, Watson and Crick's discovery. Without the foundation provided by those folks, James D. Watson and Francis H. Crick may have never reached their groundbreaking conclusion, 1953, that the DNA molecule exists in the form of a three-dimensional double helix. But before we go there, let's hold up Max Record Scratch. (laughs) The Crick-Watson story is told pretty often in schools, but there is another very important side to it. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Snagajob. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, temp to hire, part-time, or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a job's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Enter Rosalind Franklin. Rosalind Franklin has entered the chat or the ring or whatever. Uh, Franklin was born on July 25th of 1920 in London. Um, She was the daughter of a wealthy Jewish family uh, who valued education and public service. Yeah. She was a scientist when there was a lot of discrimination against women who wanted to enter STEM, science, technology, engineering, math. When she was just 18, she matriculated in the Newnham Women's College at Cambridge University, studying physics and chemistry. After Cambridge, she went to work for the British Coal Utilization Research Association, and uh, her work on the porosity of coal became her PhD thesis. As anybody who's uh, working on a PhD or has obtained one knows, uh, the thesis tends to be pretty specific once you get to that rarefied air. And this work allows her to travel the world as a guest speaker. She's an orator, a lecturer. In 1946, she moves to Paris, where she masters X-ray crystallography. This becomes her life work, and this is what leads her to make a crucial contribution to the discovery of the double helix structure of DNA. So some people think she got a raw deal out of it. A woman? Getting a raw deal in favor no of way. men? Right. History? I don't know about that, Ben. That, is, that seems incredulous. No, it happened all the time. And I would agree. I would I would argue she definitely got a raw deal. Biographer Brenda Maddox called her the, quote, dark lady of DNA based on a pretty negative, uh, sexist nickname given to her by one of her male co-workers. But, you know, her friends and, and other colleagues believe, considered her to be a very kind um, and, and brilliant scientist. So this this reputation, this idea, I don't know, this sort of like strikes me as sort of the 
Character assassination? Character assassination, yes. Character assassination almost is the idea that, like, women in business are somehow, like, mean or, like, you know, uh, not the docile creatures that men would have them be. You know what I mean? Like, it's right. just absurd, and it's based in generations of, of patriarchal uh, bull-ish, if you will. Yeah, so a lot of scientists thought it was challenging to work with her because she wouldn't just roll over. She was thought to be short-tempered and stubborn by those dudes. So there was a, a lot of friction between her and a coworker named Maurice Wilkins in particular while she was working at King's College. Uh, they were supposed to work together to find the structure of DNA, but because they really, really did not get along, they ended up working kind of in isolation. And this was just fine with Franklin. She didn't need these dudes to help her. Uh, Wilkins instead went looking for company at the Cavendish Library in Cambridge, and that's where his friend Francis Crick was working with James Watson on building a model of the DNA molecule and that's where Wilkins showed Watson and Crick some of Rosalind's work. Yikes. Oh, wait a minute. I've seen this before. Okay. Yeah. So unknown to Franklin, Watson and Crick actually kind of potentially took this stuff and ran with it. In particular, there was a uh, an artifact known as Photo 51 that was shown to Watson by Wilkins, an X-ray diffraction image of a DNA molecule. Uh, and it was, in fact, Watson's inspiration, um, you know, to uh, coin the idea of the, the double helix, you know, because the pattern was clearly a helix. And um, using Franklin's uh, photo, along with, you know, admittedly, they did do some of their own work. Uh, Watson and Crick created their now famous model. And when I say model, we literally mean like the, you know, the way it looked like a thing you could, that you see hanging in like classrooms to this day. However, until more recent times, uh, Franklin's contribution was not acknowledged. Um, after her death, however, Crick did uh, say that her contribution had indeed been critical. But it's sort of like... After okay, her death. Too little, too late, buddy, you know? Now that she's gone, let me say, good job. But that's a... You know, this is uh, all a true story. Luckily, Rosalind Franklin has finally gotten her well-deserved due, and the modern world has acknowledged just how much society owes her for her research. And that's a bit maybe of a diversion for some folks or a, a tangent, but we felt it was an incredibly crucial one. Uh, and we wanted to thank the good folks over at nature.com for providing a lot of this information in the Rosalind Franklin biography. So in any case, that story aside, which is important, what you need to know is that Watson and Crick were not the quote-unquote discoverers of DNA. They were the first scientists to make an accurate description of that complex double helix structure. And their work was directly dependent on the research of numerous scientists we've named who came before them. Thanks to all this, humanity now is capable of making even greater strides in understanding the human genome and the many ways in which DNA affects you and your loved ones. This leads us to the modern age. How crazy is it? How astonishing is it that we can just spit in a tube and learn so much about not just our past, but our present and our future? Like you said, Noel, uh, it's come a long way since the last time you took a test. 
to answer your question, Ben, how crazy, how amazing, how insane, uh, I would say quite. Uh, it's 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 remarkable, and and we're going to get into very shortly just how remarkable it was uh, for for the two of us, you know, as as human beings, finding things out about ourselves that we never possibly could have uh, without decades of of detective work, you know, literally digging through family heirlooms and traveling, you know, God knows how yeah. far, medical records and all of that stuff. So, in fact, this is pretty cool, uh, Ben. I believe as of uh, today, we found out that the human genome has finally been fully sequenced. Yes, yeah. Uh, this news came out um, pretty recently. It was June seventeenth. You can uh, find the full story on thecyverse.com. The human genome is finally fully sequenced. It's been announced. Uh, we figured it out, folks. We got them. As John Oliver would say, the first human genome was mapped back in 2001 as part of the Human Genome Project, but researchers knew it wasn't fully accurate. Uh, what we've done now, we not just being your host, but you know, we as society, the boffins went back through and filled in all those gaps and fixed all the errors that were in the first uh, attempt mm -hmm. at mapping the genome. Yeah, there were parts of it that had previously been uh, kind of disregarded and referred to as junk DNA uh, because they were seen as being comparable to copying errors, uh, repeating sequences, in fact, that ultimately have been discovered to play a more important role in the development of some human disorders. Uh, there's a really great quote from one of the researchers, uh, just because something is repetitive doesn't imply it's garbage. Evan Eichler, yeah, he, he was right. a, a senior author of, of one of the uh, publications there. And this sequence is the most comprehensive refer mammalian reference genome ever. There are six new genome-related publications that are coming out in uh, the journal Science that'll lead to an even better understanding of human evolution and the discovery of ways to treat disorders or targets that should be uh isolated to treat a variety of disorders. We're, we're on the bleeding edge now. And Michael Schatz, a Johns Hopkins University professor of computer science and biology, another senior author of some of this research, says, quote, we always knew pieces were missing, but I don't believe any of us realized how extensive they were or how interesting they were. And segue, uh, Noel, I think that's something we can say about our own results. So we completed a 23andMe test. I found out that some things were pretty normal. Other things were uh, pretty surprising. Like I am genetically likely to be of average weight. That seems like a pretty normal thing. You can also see that I am not likely to be lactose intolerant. One of the big things for me was the Melungeon stuff is true. Uh, my paternal line is a pretty crazy mix of genetic spaghetti, Ashkenazi, Congolese, French, British, Irish, and then like 2% other. So don't know if that's Native American or uh, it's just what they call unassigned at this point. Well, before I get into that breakdown of mine, I just found out, I just found a really amazing new little section on the 23andMe interface, uh, which you get, you know, log in when you send in your tests and then it gives you this whole like dashboard. And it's like the stuff that I keep finding that I didn't even notice when I first looked. One of them is a, a button that says Neanderthal. Uh, I apparently have uh, more Neanderthal DNA than 35% of other customers. Neanderthals, of course, being prehistoric humans uh, who interbred with modern humans before vanishing around 40,000 years ago and this is uh you know 
pretty amazing to me because one of the traits that I may have inherited from my Neanderthal ancestors is having a worse sense of direction. Uh, I have uh, an awful, awful sense of direction. Uh, if I did not have my Google Maps, I would never find my way anywhere. Uh, and that is just the fact. So now I can at least blame, you know, my my uh, my Neanderthal brethren on that. Huh. I got 20 percent more. I think I got 20 percent more. more. OK. DNA, all right. Uh, then then just again, this is all rated to the average. Part of the reason these tests are more specific now is because there are more people who participated. Exactly. And that's the thing. Once you, you know, become a part of the 23andMe kind of community, you are, you know, and, and you, you are able to, there's boxes you can check to keep all your data private and all of that, you know, at least in terms of like, you know, having your identity associated with it. That's an important thing to consider. And that is absolutely a thing that they can do and that they do do. But my breakdown is a little bit dull, but still a lot more detailed than it was uh, when I took it uh, previously. And when I say dull, I just mean I'm 98.6% Northwestern European, uh, and that breaks down to 65.3% British and Irish. Uh, and then they go into a little more specifics with Glasgow City, the UK, and County Dublin, plus 18 other regions. And I've got 30.5% French and German and 2.8% broadly Northwestern European with a dash of Ashkenazi Jew uh, ancestry thrown in there, 0.8. Welcome, welcome. Yeah, the uh, Thanks, this... <laughs> This stuff is fascinating. One one thing that we really enjoyed that uh, we just learned before we were recording this, I found a really interesting thing in the paternal haplogroup that uh, led us to one last short story we want to tell. A man named uh, Nial of the Nine Hostages. We uh, don't speak this language, so maybe mispronouncing it. Uh, here's what we found on 23andMe. Quote, perhaps more myth than man, Nial of the Nine Hostages is said to have been a king of Tara in northwestern Ireland in the late 4th century CE. His name comes from the tale of nine hostages that he held from the regions he ruled over. Though the legendary stories of his life may have been invented hundreds of years after he died, genetic evidence suggests that the We Nil dynasty, again apologies to native speakers, whose name means descendants of Nil, uh, did in fact trace back to just one man who bore a branch of haplogroup RM269, these descendants ruled to various degrees as kings of Ireland from the 7th to the 11th century CE. I am descended from them, and just before we started to rule, we found out, Noel, you're descended from the same dude. Brother! <laughs> yeah, it's it's weird, right? And that's, um, I, again, that's that common ancestor for us goes to 10,000 years ago, I think. That must be why we haven't seen each other at the reunions. Must be. It's pretty interesting. Um, there is also a lot of uh, health data that you can mm -hmm. glean mm -hmm. from this 23andMe test, the uh, various variants that show up in your, your, you know, your genome that can point to certain uh, risk factors you know, for diseases. Mine was pretty solid. Uh, didn't have anything that was outlying that should be like a watch out. I think I, I'm a little bit more than averagely predisposed to age-related macular degeneration, which is the most common cause of irreversible vision loss among older adults, which is funny considering that I have really, really good vision. Um, maybe it's just as I get older, it's going gonna, it's gonna to wane on me. But uh, everything else was pretty solid. Hmm. I, uh, you know, that's, it's funny because I have a couple of things that stood out to me, uh, as only one 
seemed woefully incorrect. My caffeine consumption, Noel, I am likely to consume less. And Noel, Max, you guys know that is fundamentally untrue. I beat the odds on that one because I drink way too much coffee. But overall, this stuff was um, really exciting for us. And, and Noel, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about uh, just how were you surprised by how much more, uh, as you said, granular this became in just uh, wait, how many years has it been? What's our time interval here? At least four years. Um, yes, I was. Uh, oh, my gosh. There's even a thing with asparagus pea detection. As we know that you did the, the, the thing for, uh, for uh, I believe, the stuff of genius. No, maybe that was Josh. But it was one of the shows that you wrote for and worked on. All people's pee smell like asparagus when they eat it. Only some people can't smell it. Uh, and, and under traits here, there's a section for asparagus odor detection. And I am listed as likely can smell. And, and boy, can I ever. That is so interesting. So, yeah, it, it's incredibly granular. Um, like things like cleft chin or having dandruff. I've got a 50-50% chance of getting dandruff. Early hair loss, likely no hair loss, baby. I can tell you that. Uh, I've got a good head of hair. Very excited. I've got a slightly higher than average odds of disliking cilantro. I know there are a lot of people who are probably wondering about that. I don't flush when I drink alcohol. I have the the red face that happens. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of stuff here, and I think we're both surprised by it. Uh, and I, I'm also interested in seeing where the technology goes in the future. One of the big takeaways I learned from this is that if you take a if you take this test. Again, you might find even more information. Would you say that's fair? I think so. Yeah. And so that's where we end today's story. Uh, we went from the ancient past all the way to 2022, uh, where people are still asking, what makes me me? What makes you you? What can I learn about myself and apply to not just the past, but the present and the future. And with companies like 23andMe, it's easier than ever before. So thanks. Thanks to the good folks at 23andMe. Thanks to all our fellow ridiculous historians for tuning in. And thanks, of course, to Mr. Max Williams. Max, are you going to, uh, have you ever taken a DNA test? I have not taken a DNA test before, mostly because I'm just kind of paranoid about it. But Noel said that part about it keeps your identity like, say, like, secret and stuff so maybe i will mm -hmm. you know and find out that maybe i'm related to that same guy that y'all are all related to <laughs> and hey if you like this episode why not check out some of our other fellow podcasters on the iheart podcast network uh like many questions with mini driver uh, or prodigy with our buddy lowell berlanti or 100 words with andrew cannon um where they these hosts share their journeys to health discovery or uh you know finding out what makes them them or we we or you you all the same stuff that we talked about from a completely different angle uh, you can find their episodes in the spit feed um which is another show hosted by a dear friend of ours Baratunde Thurston on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Yes, and of course, our good pals Annie and Sam over at Stuff Mom Never Told You and uh, waiting on reparations with our pals Dope Knife and Linqua Franca. Uh, thanks also to Jonathan Strickland, a.k.a. The Quister. Thanks, of course, to Alex Williams, Christopher Hasiotis, and Yves Jeffco. Absolutely. And you know what? Uh, we'll see you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 
Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. 